Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm Ryan Coonerty. Along with Debbie Cox Bolton of the New Deal, I'm lucky enough to be your co-host. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports the next generation of American leaders. From attorneys generals, to state senators, to mayors, to school board members, these are the people that are pushing policies and politics that will respond to climate change, rebuild our economy, address racial injustice, and restore our democracy. These are incredibly talented people who have dedicated themselves to public service when their country and their communities needed it the most. Check out NewDealLeaders.org to see what I'm talking about. I'm Debbie Cox Bolton, CEO of The New Deal, and very proud co-host of An Honorable Profession. My guest today is Matt Bennett, co-founder and executive vice president for public affairs at Third Way, a center-left think tank in Washington, D.C., and a great partner of New Deals. I was grateful to have Matt join me after a very busy political week to talk all things elections including what we should take from last Tuesday's results, new national polling on the presidential race, and the emergence of so many third-party efforts, including in particular the no-labels threat. We also talked about Matt's own path into public service, his involvement in an iconic political moment, and Third Way's efforts to champion pragmatic winning ideas and bolster the center-left. You aren't going to want to miss Matt at the end when he gives us all tips for what we should be doing right now as we head into 2024. I hope you enjoy. Matt Bennett, welcome to An Honorable Profession. Thanks for having me. I've been looking forward to this conversation. It's almost like we planned it, having Matt Bennett on the week <laughs> of the midterms, lots of big news. So I'm excited to dive in kind of to all things politics and where things stand. So maybe I'll just start with, we're talking Friday after the Tuesday midterm elections. What have you taken away? What do you think we should learn? Is there anything to learn? Is this a unique thing that happened in Kentucky and other states because of unique things on the ground there? What are you thinking? I think it's always dangerous to overinterpret anything that happens in off-year elections. However, the thing that I'm taking from this election and from 2022 is that when the stakes are super high, as they were in 22, when we had people that, you know, election deniers running for offices that could really fundamentally endanger the democracy if they had been, for example, secretary of state of a swing state. When those things are on the line, when fundamental rights like reproductive rights are on the line, when democracy is on the line, voters have stuck with Democrats and with our people and our issues. And I think we saw that again this week. And I am hoping when the stakes are just astronomically high, when everything's on the line in 2024, that that's what we're going to see again. I like that. Let's go with that. I want to dive into some unique things happening this election, but I guess it's also probably important. We know that we're also talking the week that the New York Times poll came out, CNN poll came out. You know, there does seem to be this disconnect, and maybe you're explaining it with the stakes and when other things get settled, right? It's very easy to talk about things when it's hypothetical and you don't have actual candidates on the ballot yet and blah, blah, blah. But I am wondering kind of what you make of the, you know, kind of troubling is probably an understatement polls for Democrats nationally coming out this week or whether we should not take stock in it. It's a snapshot in time and it's early and let's see how things play out. Well, I think I would say two things about the poll, besides the fact that obviously it was really hard to read and very scary. And Democrats should be taking it very seriously and running as if we're behind because everybody should run as if they're 
behind. But I would say two things. One, this poll was a referendum poll, not a choice. So at this stage, a year out from the election, we're still in the referendum stage of politics, which is to say people are judging Joe Biden and Joe Biden alone. They know who Donald Trump is. They have an opinion about Trump. But when they're choosing in a horse race, they're thinking much more about Biden because he's been the guy living in their lives for the past three years. Most people do not think about Trump all the time the way that obsessives like you and I do. And so they haven't considered that Trump is the kind of horrible human and politician that we know him to be. But they're going to be reminded of that with about a billion dollars of spending from the Biden team over the course of the next year. And so by the time we get to November, it's going to be a choice between Biden and Trump, not just a referendum. And then the second thing I would say is that David Brooks has a great column today where he says voters are using polls to complain and they're using the elections to make their choice. And that makes sense. I mean, voters are very grumpy and they've been grumpy for 20 years. I mean, there hasn't been a president with a positive approval rating in a really, really long time. And I think that's what we're seeing here as well. I think those are both really, I haven't seen the Brooks piece. That's an excellent point. I think both those make a lot of sense. Let's talk about something else you kind of unique happening this time. You talked about the choice between Biden and Trump and it sounds like there might be choices more than Biden and Trump, potentially, with all of the third party candidate stuff that's happening. You have really taken the lead on trying to sound the alarm bells about the no labels effort in particular. Let's start there, although I'd love to talk kind of about all that's happening with the third party. We had a new one jump in this week again with Jill Stein. But can you just, I don't want to make any assumptions about what people listening actually know here. So I think it'd be great if can you just kind of let people don't assume and let people kind of know what the no labels is and, and really how their strategy has shifted lately and kind of where we are with them. Sure. So just a level set here. Our view is that in a head-to-head race of Biden against Trump, given what we just discussed, Biden would be in pretty good shape. We think Trump has a very low ceiling. He is below 50% in the polls, and that isn't going to go up. People aren't going to decide they like Trump more. So he can't win if it's a head-to-head race against Joe Biden. He can win if there are third party candidates in the race that draw votes away from Biden, voters who don't love Biden, but would stick with them if it was a head to head, but might go somewhere else if they have an option. So we're very worried about, you know, well-financed, credible third party candidates being on the ballot. We saw in 2016 that Jill Stein running as a Green Party candidate and Gary Johnson for the Libertarians together really hurt Hillary Clinton, maybe enough to have swung the election to Trump. So we were particularly alarmed when a group called No Labels, it's been around about 12 years, they're a kind of centrist organization, bipartisan organization that you and I know very well. Our friends founded No Labels and work there. And for the most part of the course of the last decade or so, we've thought that much of what No Labels has done has been very constructive. They have the Problem Solvers Caucus in Congress, which is a kind of two by two caucus where one Republican, and one Democrat join together and they promised to work together, hasn't worked out as well as they had hoped. There's been a lot of dissension in those ranks, but look, it's a it's a worthwhile thing to have done. However, last year, No Labels announced that for reasons that remain unclear to me and probably to you, they were going to run a third party candidate for president. Now, why are they doing this as a purportedly centrist organization, given that Joe Biden has governed as a centrist, has signed seven, seven bipartisan bills, 
The other two big bills he signed were written by Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema. This is not a guy that is governed as a radical. He is a moderate by temperament. He is a good, empathetic human. Why are they looking for an alternative to Joe Biden? I don't know, but they are. And they have raised a lot of money. At last count, they told the New York Times recently they'd raised $60 million to try to gain ballot access in as many states as they can. They're on the ballot in 12 states, including three battlegrounds, Arizona, North Carolina, and Nevada, and they're trying to get on everywhere else. So they're very serious about running what they call a unity ticket, one Republican and one Democrat as a third party. And the reason that we are so alarmed about this is there is absolutely positively no question that a no-labels candidate would draw votes away from Biden and help Trump. And in fact, we think that could be decisive. They could be the spoiler that makes Trump president again. And that's why we're so worried about it. I mean, one of the things that is surprising or frustrating, I guess is a better word to me about no labels. One is the false equivalency that, you know, I think that what's been said, what they've been saying is that, you know, voters don't like either choice. So we're going to have a third choice. But, you know, again, maybe in another year, that argument makes sense. You know, Two, one, this is not a left-leaning president running against a right-wing, right? So that does that false equivalency doesn't make sense. But the other thing that frustrates me is that they're acting as a political party, right? They're getting on the ballot. They're, you know, raising all this money, $60 million is to your count. But they're not beholden to the same kind of rules of, as a political party in terms of transparency and the primary process, which is done out in public to pick a candidate. So I'm just surprised that there's not been more made of that in the national press or whatever it is, because it seems really not reasonable. It's really not democratic, actually. Not a bit. I mean, it's an excellent point. It's really remarkable what they're doing. So just to be clear, Democrats and Republicans and Green Party officials and libertarians all have to play by the same set of rules, which is to say, you got to raise money in these relatively small increments. You can't take more than $2,900 from an individual. And those people have to be disclosed. Those are the rules that the Federal Election Commission requires of all parties. No Labels is a 501c4 organization that's also called a dark money group. They can take money in unlimited quantities and they don't have to reveal who their donors are. They are getting on the ballot in these states literally as the No Labels party. And yet there's this fig leaf that they're operating behind. It's a decision of the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals from about 10 years ago that says that a 501c4 can do what No Labels is doing. They can use unlimited dark money to get on the ballot as long as they don't name a candidate. So when they do name a candidate, whether that's at the convention that they're holding in Dallas in March or before, then they'll be subject to the same rules as the other parties, but until then they can do what they're doing. And then the second thing you note is this elite-driven operation with these you know, unknown but presumably very wealthy donors, many of whom are connected to Trump in some way. One of the donors we do know is Harlan Crow the great and good friend of Justice Thomas, these guys are probably going to pick the nominee. They've articulated no system by which they're going to choose their nominee. Now, Democrats and Republicans for the past 50 years have made the system increasingly democratic, small d democratic, which is to say voters choose who the nominee is, not any insiders in some mansion in Georgetown. So we'll go to the polls and we'll decide who the nominee is. Now, on the Democratic side, the nominee is going to be Joe Biden, which is tradition. The incumbent president generally wins easily. But on the Republican side, they've got a real fight on their hands. I mean, sort of. Trump's going to win it, but at least they're having a process and Trump has to win votes to get the nomination. 
for no labels, we don't know what the process is, but it's probably that their leadership just says who the nominee will be. Can you talk about the evolution? So when they started out, the idea was, or what they had said was that if it looks like, I forget the exact words, but if it looks like there's a consensus behind one candidate or people are happy with their choices, they would stand down and they would not do this. And there seems to be a shift in their strategy, something they're kind of, I don't know if they're calling it or other people are calling it the kind of the contingency strategy that essentially now they're looking at, as I understand it, kind of just making sure that neither of those candidates win outright. Is that so? Yeah. What do we know about that strategy and what are they saying about that? So this is actually among the scarier things No Labels is doing. So what they began, to your point, they said, we're going to win the election. They put out an electoral college map. We've all seen these maps. Usually they're red and blue. Theirs has red, blue and gold. And the gold are the states that they said the No Labels unity ticket was going to win and they were going to get to 270 electoral votes. And the map, which is on our website at thirdway.org slash no labels, is laugh out loud ridiculous. I mean, they have their candidate winning states that Joe Biden won by 30 points. They have their candidate winning Delaware, Joe Biden's home state of Delaware. So everyone saw that that was ridiculous. We did a roundup of all the analysts, you know, Amy Walter and the folks from CNN and MSNBC and Harvard and Larry Sabato. They all looked at this and said, oh, give me a break. They're not going to win 270. They're not going to win a single state, probably, but they certainly aren't going to win all of that. No labels. The people who run the labels are misguided, I think, but they are not dumb. They understand how ridiculous that is. And So now it seems that they have another idea in mind. They want to exert leverage on Trump or Biden by trying to win a state or two. And as you note, denying both Trump and Biden 270 electoral votes, because this isn't done by plurality. You have to win 270 electoral votes to become president. And if you don't, the 12th Amendment of the Constitution says that the House of Representatives decides and they vote based on delegation, which means the Republican would win. So. What they are planning is to try to win a couple of states or maybe one state that denies both Trump and Biden 270 electoral votes. And then in the period between the election and when the electoral college voters gather to cast their ballots about a month later, they would somehow negotiate with Trump or Biden or both, decide who they like better. You know, I don't know. We want a commission on the budget or something. And then they would ask their electors in the state that they won to cast their ballots for either Trump or Biden, which, by the way, would not the person who won the most votes in that state. So they would have to be what we call faithless electors. If, you know, Larry Hogan is their candidate and Larry Hogan wins in Wisconsin, and then they say to the Larry Hogan electors, please cast your ballots for Biden, they would have to you know, go against the will of the people who voted. So it is completely bananas. And it is especially insane in the context of January 6th and Donald Trump and the assault on democracy, because then that all goes to Congress on January 6th of 2025. And the new Congress has to decide whether those electoral votes count and they're going to make that person present or whether they're going to decide on the 12th Amendment by delegation, in which case the Republicans win it. It is bananas. And we can't believe they're actually thinking about this, but their chief strategist, Ryan Clancy, went on television and said they are. And so we put out a paper recently showing that this is a real danger and using only things that they have actually said and published. 
just another kind of feeling that that is the most anti-democratic thing I've heard, right? I mean, it doesn't make any sense at all. I want to stand on Liberals just for one more minute, which is to talk about their candidate. Again, it's frustrating to me that we have these kind of hypothetical matchups, like, you know, and they use kind of the poll that says, I'd love a third choice to show this broad support for an unnamed person. You know, I think there's lots of people in this country who say, look, you know, for various reasons, I would love a third choice too. But until we know who that person is, it seems a little bit kind of, you know, ethereal and not real. So, but they will have to name a candidate eventually, and that will change things. They have said, I think, or you can tell me that they have hinted or said out, outright that they'd like a Republican on top of the ticket. I'm not sure. I know Joe Manchin has also been mentioned as part of the ticket or on top of the ticket at some point. And of course, we had the news this week that he was not going to seek reelection and instead go around the country and see if there's support for something different. So what do you make of like where we are on who's this candidate going to be? Right. Manchin's announcement yesterday that he was not going to run for re-election generated a lot of discussion about whether he would be their candidate. And it's not going to be him. I just was tweeting about this. We know this for a variety of reasons. One, as you point out, they have been saying to everyone who will listen for the last month, that they're going to put a Republican at the top of the ticket. A month ago, the New York Times reported they had three different sources speaking on background, saying they had heard it directly from No Labels leadership that they're going to have a Republican at the top of the ticket. And we've heard that from truly dozens of people. We also know this because No Labels put out some data. Now, their data is very suspect. I do not think any listeners should rely on No Labels data, but they put out a chart recently, again, is on our website, that says that according to their calculation, putting a Democrat at the top of their ticket would hand Trump seven of the eight swing states, eight in their, by their count, seven of them. So Trump wins the election if they put a Democrat at the top of their ticket. Now, they also claim a Republican at the top of their ticket wouldn't do that and would hurt Biden less than the other way around. That's not true. But the point is they themselves have said Trump wins if they put a Democrat at the top of their ticket. So it's impossible to even contemplate them turning around saying, and we're going to name Joe Manchin as our presidential nominee. And look, Joe Manchin's not going to be the number two on anybody's ticket. He's not going to be Admiral Stockdale, the running mate of Ross Perot in this scenario. He wouldn't take it unless he was the presidential nominee, and it is not going to be him. The last thing I'll say is there was a flurry of activity around this draft effort by somebody or other to try to generate a ticket with Mitt Romney and Joe Manchin. Again, who's at the bottom of that one? I mean, Mitt Romney was the Republican nominee for president. He damn near won not very long ago. He's not going to be number two, and Joe Manchin isn't either. Moreover, Romney has said many times, he was quoted in the Washington Post saying this, that he thinks the no labels idea is terrible and will help Trump win, and he wants no part of it. So it isn't going to be Joe Manchin. We don't know who it will be, but it's going to be a Republican. We know that Larry Hogan, the former governor of Maryland, really wants it. He's been kind of campaigning for it. John Huntsman, the former governor of Utah, is interested as well. He's appeared at their events. And then there's a bunch of other people that are probably on their list that are sort of like that, former governors and senators. And is it, do we know that they will be announcing after this convention? And is that the timeline that they have laid out for when they will announce a candidate? They've said that it'll be in 2024. They just said that yesterday. So it won't be, I guess, next month. But the convention is intended to nominate someone. So presumably they will have a nominee coming out of the convention. Whether they will announce who that is prior to the convention or not, nobody knows. We don't know what their process is, but that's probably the last moment when they can unveil the nominee. Okay. I want to switch gears for a second. 
and talk just about there's no labels as you said at the top this is the reason that's folk you're focusing on it of course is it's the money they're raising the success they're having getting on the ballot all of those things but there are now what three other at least you know candidates running robert kennedy jill stein announced this week and cornell west have all so do you what is your take on is this just i mean we've always seen we've mentioned some previous three part third party candidates and the impact they've had why are we getting so many what do you think it means for the whole election, I guess. I think there's two reasons why we're getting so many. Reason number one is the no labels malarkey about how this time is different and everybody's desperately unhappy with their choices from the Democratic and Republican Party and they want something else. That isn't really true. Voters are always unhappy with their choices. They always want somebody else. And this time is not particularly different. But it has been interpreted that way, I think, by lots of people who would like to run for president. And therefore, I think you're getting this crowded field. The second thing is you've got an odd situation whereby you've got a well-financed group in no labels that's getting ballot access successfully. They got a lot of money. With money and organization and time, you can get on the ballot and, and no labels is doing that successfully. But then you've got established third parties like the Green Party and the Libertarian Party that already have ballot access in most or all places. And so Jill Stein, who's the head of the Green Party, has just said, I'm taking that ballot line. Cornell West was supposed to be their candidate. Apparently, something blew up in the relationship between West and the Green Party. So now he wants to run as an independent. And then a similar thing happened with RFK Jr. When he left the Democratic Party, he was talking to the Libertarians who have ballot access, but that didn't work. So he's going to get it on his own. So you've got the third parties that traditionally are there, the small parties like the Greens and Libertarians, they may have their own people. And then you got these other two guys. The thing to understand about Weston Kennedy is they do not have ballot access yet. And it is not clear that they can get it. They certainly can't get it in 50 states. They're not going to be competing to win because it takes time and money and it takes hard money which is to say the money we talked about earlier that you have to raise in small increments from disclosed people. Elon Musk apparently is a supporter of RFK Jr.'s, but he can't just write a check for RFK to get on the ballot. He can use that money as a super PAC. He can run ads saying RFK Jr. is great, which is really something, but he can't use that money to gain ballot access. He's got to do that the old fashioned and much harder way of raising hard money. So that's going to be a huge challenge for Cornell West. I think somewhat less of a challenge for Kennedy because he's a little bit more famous. He's got this big name and he's got a built-in group of weirdo supporters who hate vaccines, but still pretty tough to do. Do you think that any of those party candidates that you just talked about, like, does that change the no labels calculation at all? Or they just have so much more money in ballot access? As you just kind of described it, it's not even clear where they're going to be on the ballot. Like, it's really the fundamental no labels threat has not really changed with any of this. Is that your assessment? It is. And look, Kennedy could take off in some way that could change the calculus for no labels. But I don't know. I mean, I don't understand their calculus at all. They, they seem to be using a math that is not known to the physics of this planet. So I don't know what they're doing, but I do think they're not wrong to be suspicious that it will be hard for West to get on very many ballots and, and a little easier, but still pretty tough for Kennedy as well, whereas they will be. In terms of who poses the greatest threat, that's hard to know as well. I mean, Cornel West is appealing to a block of voters that are at the core of the Democratic base, especially African-American voters. So that's dangerous. Kennedy 
No one knows. There's been all kinds of speculation that he hurt Trump more than Biden. We don't buy that. We think anyone who divides the anti-Trump coalition in any way is, is dangerous for Biden. So we really don't know how the Kennedy thing would cut, but no labels. There is no doubt they would hurt Biden badly because they would be doing it purportedly from the center, center of what we don't really know, but you know they were making a critique of Biden from the center and they're just well-financed and they'll probably have a fairly high profile candidate. One last political question. Is there a scenario here, which we're so caught up in so many things, where Trump is not the nominee, not because we're, you know, we all see the polls, we know where he is, everyone else is, you know, vying for second. But I mean, the lawsuits, the who knows what else, like, is there a scenario where Trump, the cheeseburgers, I mean, is there a scenario where we are sitting here in X number of months and Trump is actually not the nominee? Sure, of course. I mean, absolutely there is. 91 felony counts. He's 77 years old and, you know, deeply unhealthy in many ways. So definitely it's possible that Trump doesn't make it to the finish line in the Republican nominating process. I think the overwhelming odds are that he will and that he will be the nominee, but it is possible that he isn't. I think if he is not the nominee, no labels has said pretty clearly a million times that they will stand down. So I think the threat changes dramatically uh, one, there will be no threat of Trump being president. That would be an incredible blessing for America and the world. But it would also be quite different. I mean, we'd be running against DeSantis or Haley or somebody, but probably not against no labels. Yeah, that makes all the sense in the world. I'm so grateful for you to taking the time to talk about politics for a little while. But I want to switch back to kind of what we normally talk about on this show for a minute, which is kind of it's called an honorable profession, as you know. And and part of our goal is to help people understand that people in politics, particularly elected officials, but other people we talk to kind of, you know, how they got into this business. It's one of my personal missions, if you will, in life to help restore faith in government and politics. I think it's actually part of why we're in this mess right now. And so, de, you know, humanizing, letting people get to know the people who represent them or who work in this business is an important part of what that that we do. So with that question, I love your story, how you got there, particularly some of your fun anecdotes that people will recognize, but which I will ask you if you don't bring it up yourself. But tell me how you, did you always think you were going into politics? Like, how did you land where you are? I did. You know, I was one of those weirdo kids that, you know, after I got over wanting to be a paramedic when I was 11, I just thought nothing else was interesting or mattered. I mean, I didn't know why everyone didn't want to go into politics. It seems like that's how you change the world or change your community. That's how you make a difference. And it's super fun and exciting and interesting. Now, Turns out most people do not share that view, but that is definitely what I thought. And let me just one side note to say I'm preaching to the choir, the listeners of this podcast, but the New Deal and you have done an incredible job of bringing honor back to this profession. Every New Dealer I've ever met has been an incredible inspiration and their stories are so fantastic. And so I just applaud you and, and all the New Deal leaders for doing that and for, I hope, helping to inspire a new generation of people that even if they weren't dorks like me, want to get into politics for all the right reasons. When I started in politics was right after college. Back then in 1987, presidential campaigns started in the spring before the Iowa caucuses. So it was a much gentler time. So that it was just at the beginning of the beginning. There were seven candidates running for president. I jumped onto the Dukakis campaign because I had a connection through my dad into the policy department there. That policy team was pretty impressive. Gene Sperling, Madeleine Albright, a bunch of other people who went on to become very famous worked on that team. But what I really wanted to do was advance work. I wanted to 
go around the country and help set up events for the candidate. And that struck me as the most fun and interesting thing to do as a young person on a campaign. And so I pestered my way onto the road and started out early in the primaries doing events for the caucus, where it was just like me and one other person blowing up balloons and handing out leaflets and, you know, trying to organize press risers and stuff. Had no idea what I was doing, but was privileged to work with a bunch of veterans who had been doing it for a long time and had worked on the campaigns of Walter Mondale and Jimmy Carter and some had worked with the White House advanced teams. So I learned very quickly how to do it. And then by the time we got to the general election, the anecdote that I know you want me to tell is that I was involved as one of the advanced guys with one of the most infamous events in political history, which is when Mike Dukakis rode in a tank. And he looked so ridiculous that it was later used by the Bush campaign later. I mean, like 48 hours later, used by the Bush campaign in a devastating negative ad. And the whole story is really insane, but we kind of knew that it was going to be bad. I have the same kind of large nose, Mediterranean nose, shall we say, that the Dukakis has. I went for a ride in the tank, wore the helmet, looked at myself in the mirror and thought, this is not going to go well. So we warned the people in the Boston headquarters that we were worried about it. My boss came out, made the decision that he was going to do it. And the rest literally is history. When he emerged from the tank, they, they had him wear a tank suit just in case something went wrong. You have to wear this one-piece jumpsuit where they can pull you out of the tank. They had made it special for him with his name on it. I have that suit in my house. I've tried to donate it to the Smithsonian. No one ever calls me back when I call the Smithsonian. But if you're listening, Smithsonian, give me a call. And that was, I am now, you know, forever the Dukakis in the tank guy, but, you know, you got to own it. Well, I have to say, thank you for telling the story. I feel bad, actually. You knew what I was asking. And I want to end on a different, higher note. But I love that you tell the story. Thank you. But why it's just fun to know because it's something we all know that you were involved in. But it's also, you know, it's also, you're such an amazing strategist and such an amazing communicator. And it's just, I love the story because it's, it's fun to to know what people went through, like to get to where they are, right? Like, so, you know, the, you know, I have my own, not quite as presidential level, you know, foibles that happened over my career where it's like, you know, you learn from these things, right? That's how you grow. And so I think our listeners kind of love hearing that there are, you know, that's not, everything doesn't always go well. That's okay. Right. You know, so that's another reason it's a fun story, but you know, you've done many things, worked in the white house, you know, worked on, I think four presidential campaigns over your career, done all kinds of amazing things, but I want to end because third way is such an amazing partner to us at new deal and, thank you for the kind words about New Deal. Third Way is a group that Matt is executive vice president of, but and one of the four co-founders of Third Way. So I just wanted to give you a chance maybe to talk about Third Way a little bit and, and the great work that you guys are doing to help chart a path forward of kind of center-left, problem-solving oriented politics generally, and to thank you for all the work that you're doing there. Well, sure. And thank you. I mean, after I got through doing campaigns and working in the White House, I went to work, and this is a not a great career move, to go from a mid-level White House job to a, working in a startup gun control group. I would say that's at best lateral, but we, we, <laughs> yeah. so we muddled through doing gun safety stuff for a while. But after four years of that, our donor kind of went away. And so we formed Third Way, those of us that were running this group, Americans for Gun Safety, in 2005, with help from people like you and Helen Milby and others wouldn't be here without you. But we kind of muddled through the first few years, figuring out how one 
runs a think tank. And now we're coming up, you know, we're almost 20 years old now, and we've got nearly 90 staff and fellows, and we're doing a range of work that is intended to help build uh, policy chops and political knowledge and support for the center left. We focus mostly on federal officials. So we work with the New Deal closely on some things, but state and local is not our main bag. But our intent is to try to build institutional power for the center left. And we have no greater ally in that than New Deal. So it's been a fantastic partnership from the beginning. We also work very closely with the New Democrats in Congress, which is one of uh, Helen Milby's other passions. And so, you know, this is a small but mighty community of us working together. Yeah, it is. Well, thank you, Matt, for everything, for your longtime friendship and for your partnership at Third Way. And for today, come in and kind of tell us a little bit about what's going on politically and what we should be looking out for. I guess maybe back just, is there anything you would tell our listeners that they should be doing right now as we maybe end on that? As we gear up for this election, we're going to turn the page off after the last election into the new year. What are you telling people who care about this, who are politically active? What should they be doing right now? I think two things. One is, well, three things. A, don't despair. We're a long way away. And as I said earlier, voters have shown that when the stakes are enormously high, they have done the right thing. And I have faith that they're going to do that again. And B, do fight like we're behind because maybe we are. And even if we aren't, you should always fight like we're behind. And so you know, get out there, organize and help at the local level, because ultimately, you know, we can fiddle around all we want with messages and narrative and policy. But if people don't turn out to vote and vote the right way, nothing matters. So that's the most important thing. And then C, I would say, push back on anyone who says that the options that we're getting, you know, that Joe Biden is not sufficient option. He's not done a good job. He hasn't been a real moderate and a real force for change in this country that has been sensible and effective because I think he has. Thank you so much, Matt. I really appreciate it being here. Thank you for having me. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. Thanks to the team at New Deal for producing this episode. We encourage you to bring honor to public service. And because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars are used in the making of this podcast.